Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Welcome to today's episode of the Real View Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Wiley. Joining me is my co-host, Carrie Arblaster. And with us today is our special guest, Ronell Talmanson, Director of Housing Enforcement and Mediation. Ronell, we're so happy to have you with us today. Carrie, thank you for joining me as always. Welcome, you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me, Allison. And great to see you, Carrie. And I'm really looking forward to an interesting conversation about fair housing. We are too, Rennell. Uh, you came highly recommended. I know you've done work with our organization and local boards before. So we're excited to dig into this topic with you on our podcast. But before we do, we have a signature question that we ask all of our guests. As you know, the name of our podcast is The Real View. And what we like to ask um, our guest speakers is what is the best view that you have ever had? I've tried to rack my brains and part of me thought about the garden this year because I had some uh, broccoli plants that actually wintered through the winter season and it produced broccoli as soon as we got to March 1st and got rid of the, the month of February. Remember Groundhog Day in February was like, oh, it did see its shadow. It's going to be cold. Okay. So I thought about that and then I thought, well, but you know, I did go to Puerto Rico for my birthday, which was back in January or earlier this year and was there at a place along the west coastline of, of uh, Puerto Rico. It was this beautiful standing at the very top of this cliff that overlooked the ocean below. And you could see all these tremendous rocks that were there where the water's hitting it. And there's one part of this cliff where you walk along this edge, along this uh, cliff, to where it's probably no more than about, I'd say, seven feet wide on either side of you. And it juts out there all by itself. And to be standing there looking over and we're looking at the crystal blue waters with the turquoise green and so forth and the waves flashing on it. In fact, I made it one of my background shots for doing stuff. And the folks are like, where's that at? I'm like, it's in Puerto Rico. Okay. So I guess that would probably be my best view that I think I've ever seen in my lifetime. That's awesome. That's, That's great. I love both of that though, because sometimes it is just the most simplest things like broccoli grown in the backyard after a crazy cold and snowy winter. I mean, it's cool. Yeah. Both of those are really great and they're different. That's awesome. And trust me, I was not supposed to have broccoli that I would plant in November that would winter and then would actually produce real broccoli crowns in March. Okay. That's amazing. It's still growing. So I tell people every day, I take pictures and go, I love walking out there every day going, I don't know how it survived or how the three <laughs> survived, but I'm going to reap the benefits. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you again for being with us today. As Allison mentioned, you are with the Ohio Civil Rights Commission. And for our listeners today who may not know what that organization is or how it works, we would love to just start with some basic background information on the Ohio Civil Rights Commission. So the commission is a state agency that was formed by statute by the legislators in 1959. And that's years before my birth. Um, I won't say how many, but years before my birth. <laughs> Actually, not too many. But I was living in Texas at the time. And so we're a state agency. And, and essentially what we do is we receive complaints of discrimination. And we've got three, we've got three primary areas 
where people can file charges with us and that being employment discrimination. And we also have housing, which is what I partake in every day. We also have public accommodation, but you can also file charges based upon discrimination, dealing with educational institutions for higher ed, dealing with disability issues only. And uh, one of the things I like to always mention to people, which is that under our statute, the actual burial site where someone is, is buried, that actually falls under our statute as well in terms of where you're going to be buried at. And I'll let you guys contemplate what part of the statute is, is it found in? Is it employment, housing, or public accommodation? So your burial place is called your final resting place. And so in terms of yeah. the three areas of discrimination that I mentioned, the primary three, which is employment, public accommodation, and housing, what do you think that that falls underneath? I go with housing. And Allison? I'm saying public accommodation, but I feel like I'm going to be tricked. <laughs> it is housing, okay? It, it falls wow. under housing, okay? Wow. And so and so the, my hint was the final resting place. Yeah, yeah. But then if I put in the word place, you might be thinking places of public accommodation. Okay? Yeah, and I'm thinking like you you get buried usually in a public place. So then I'm like, okay, you know, but yeah, wow, that's fascinating. I never would have even thought that. That's crazy. It's it's one of those little tidbits that are out there that for years I didn't even know it existed and probably until about a decade or so ago and I was reading the statute even closer than I normally do. And I was like, it falls under there. So essentially, when you look at what we do as an agency, okay, um, people are pretty familiar with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, as well as the Fair Housing Act of 1968. So both of those, one was dealing with housing, the other was dealing with employment. So the state of Ohio, way before uh, that we had the 1964 Civil Rights Act, it passed a state statute that dealt with, that dealt with employment, okay? And then along the spectrum of time before the 68 Civil Rights Act was passed in terms of housing, it, the state of Ohio put in housing discrimination law as well. So essentially, when you look at what we do, it's always about someone being discriminated against because they believe that they were being denied some right that falls under either employment, housing, or public accommodation. And so a lot of times I tell people, I said, people sometimes think, okay, this is sort of um, confusing to some extent. And I like to say, let me take the the, the, some of the confusion out of it in terms of what we do, because essentially we are a neutral agency. So the paradigm that's been created is to say that you have the federal government that's there and it's receiving charges of discrimination, employment and housing and so forth. Okay, And so in some states like Ohio, the state legislatures passed a, a bill that enacted a law that we have right now, which is called the Ohio Revised Code 4112. And so within that statute is employment, housing, public accommodation, disability and higher ed, and also credit as well. So those things are there. So when you have a state agency that's doing that work at the state level, what that state agency tries to do is to be substantially equivalent to its federal counterpart, which in this instance here would be the EEOC, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission on the employment side, and then it would be the Fair Housing Act with uh, Title VIII with HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So if indeed your state has the substantial equivalency designation, then what they're going to do is they're going to primarily let you do those cases that would fall within your jurisdiction, within your state, so that the feds will then be working primarily on other concurrent jurisdictions that may not be something that the state would be doing, because we've got something that's out there called Title VI, which deals with program issues for housing that HUD deals with. And then there's also Section 504 with the federal level that deals with disability and so forth. So they would be doing those types of things and, and permit us to do 
under the Fair Housing Act that we enforce under 4112, we would do the housing part of that. And then when it comes to the employment side, the same thing would be relevant. And so what we are here as an agency is to do as well is not also be the ones primarily investigating these complaints for the state of Ohio, but we're also there to, to sort of decrease the numbers of cases that could potentially be filed into state court. And so oftentimes, you know, people have the right, if they decide to do so, under state law to file into court if they wanted to on, a, on an employment action, they could file into, into, into state court on a housing action, okay? In terms of this, this dynamic between the paradigm that's there, which is when it comes to the cases coming from having the feds not have to investigate those that we can investigate here, there's also this deal of saying that we're also here to reduce the numbers of cases that could be filed in state court. And so that's another reason why the statute is there, which is to permit people to file with us as an administrative agency. Now, starting April 15th, with a new changes to the revised code that's, that's happening, whereas you didn't have to necessarily file with us first at the state level to be able to walk into state court. As of April 15th, you will have to file with the commission. If you were looking at an employment action, you have to file with us first before you can walk into state court, okay? Now, on the federal level with the EEOC, they made that requirement as well, which is before you could file in the federal court, you had to file with an administrative agency who would then presumptively do an administrative investigation. Within a certain period of time, the person could be issued what they call a right to sue. So on the housing side, there is no such beast. But I just wanted to point that out in terms of. So this is just for just employment, employment in Ohio. But okay. in talking about the agency, it's one of those things, one of those changes that's happening right now as we speak. I do have to speak to that because, because that's part of what we do as well. Yeah, absolutely. But on the housing side, there's never been a right to sue letter whatsoever. Okay. So with housing, you could automatically walk into federal court or state court with a, and bypass the administrative agency, just bypass it completely. However, my, my main point here is to say that it allows people to file the charge with us to investigate, as opposed to having all of these cases rolled into state court. Because yeah. we do approximately 400 to 450 housing cases per year. Wow. If we were not here, the court system would not be able to handle 450 complaints being filed. Right, right. And so right, that, right. that's one of the things that we're doing. And so what are we what are we looking at when you file the charge? The basis, you can file based upon race, color, sex, national origin, ancestry, military, which was added, I think, in 2004 or perhaps 2008. And then we've got a deal called retaliation. And of course, there's disability. OK, so these are these protected class bases that exist that are there for whence you could file a charge based upon that. And when someone files a charge, they're not saying that. They're not coming with us saying there's absolute 100% proof that this happened. What we're supposed to do as an agency is conduct a neutral investigation. And so we get to ask the party who filed the charge questions about what transpired leading up to the filing of the charge, as well as asking the entity for which they filed it against. We often call that the respondent or the housing provider under the housing statute. And so we ask them questions and get them to produce documentation. But the misnomer is, is that the commission is only for the charging party, which we always try to make people understand we are not for the charging party, okay? We are here to conduct an investigation and then mm -hmm. to render a decision as to whether or not discrimination would have occurred. So like in the city of Columbus, they just passed an ordinance that created kind of a protective class around, you know, source of income, right? Yeah. Do you guys deal then with local issues as well, even if the ordinance is not 
revered in state statute? Like, what would you do in that case? So with the commission being, a, as one of my coworkers says, we are a creature of statute is what she tells me. <laughs> and so that, that's what I use, which is if it's not in the statute, then we can't investigate it. So if okay. we don't have that yeah. as a protected class, we cannot investigate it. Okay. Remember the old, the uh, Prego commercials, it's in there. Or maybe you yep, don't. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if a consumer or an individual feels that they're being discriminated against, what is their path to your organization? How do you guys work to promote your existence and share with people that they do have this, you know, second option before they feel that they have to go into the court system? And really, I mean, it makes sense now that your title includes the term mediation, right? Because that's essentially what you what you are is yeah. you're attempting to mediate, you know, a disagreement without having to litigate. But how do people find out about you guys? Well, generally, I mean, they, they can obviously go to our website and see that, that we're there. But I want to say probably back, because I started in the year 2000, overseeing the housing department. And we, during a certain period of time, we produced quite a few PSAs that we were doing to let the public know in terms of what we were doing, in terms of what was out there. There were things on commercials for radio, radio ads that were there and so forth. And again, when you consider that we've been around since 1959, a lot of people in the community may know who we are. And then there may be still a lot of people who don't know that we exist. And so generally back before pre-COVID, you always had people having the ability to file charges at the what used to be six regional offices. So in terms of them knowing who we are and where to go, we started when I was here, when I started in 1997, we had six regional offices. One down in Cincinnati, one in Dayton, one up in Toledo, one in uh, Cleveland, and one in Akron, and then one here in Columbus. So by having those six major cities have an actual office located there, that also helped to promote the awareness that we were there within the community. Because clearly, if you were in a rural area, it's more difficult to get people to understand that you're there. So if you look at the charges overall that we may process each year, it wouldn't be uncommon to say that within Hamilton County, which is Cincinnati, or Montgomery County, which would be Dayton, or Summit County, which would be Akron, or here in Columbus, Franklin County, and so forth, that you would find that the largest numbers of charges that are being filed are within those larger cities, within those major counties. And then we have constituent groups that are out there that also have something that feeds into fair housing in general. And when I say fair housing in general, I'm not talking about filing a complaint about fair housing. I'm talking about things that deal with home ownership, renting and leasing, you have housing authorities that are out there, like the Metropolitan Housing Authorities, and I think most counties have one. Like in Columbus here, it's the Columbus Metropolitan Housing Authority. Down in Cincinnati, you have the Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing Authority. So these groups know who we are as well. So when individuals are, are working with them to get suitable housing, they would know that, okay, if there was something going on with the transaction. Then there's also fair housing organizations that exist. And Ohio has got a very strong contingent of fair housing organizations. And these are individuals who are there who seek to have people also come to them about fair housing issues and potentially filing a complaint with the Civil Rights Commission in, in, in the event that there was. And then when you look at landlord-tenant issues, and when I say about fair housing issues, when I say housing, I mean even people that deal with under landlord-tenant issues uh, like uh, legal aid and so forth across the state of Ohio, most of those legal aid organizations are fully aware of who the commission is. And if they have someone that we're dealing with an issue that could be landlord-tenant but could also become a fair housing issue, they know that they can file complaints with us. And they have been filing those complaints as well. Super interesting. 
So you mentioned you've been doing this work since 1997 and as director of, of housing and hearing that, you know, you're seeing upwards of 450 cases a year. I would love to hear more about you and how you got involved in this work. You know, what it's like to deal with, you know, hundreds of cases. I'm sure it keeps you, you very busy. So talk to us a little bit about your background, how you got started and, you know, what, what some of the things that you deal with on an everyday basis look like. Well, I, uh, I came to the commission as a legal intern because I was a law student at Capital Law University. And I started as an intern for one whole year. And at that time, I was, as I told people, I said, look, I was in law school and I needed to be able to pay the bills. And I always had a passion about issues dealing with civil rights. And just essentially, I always considered myself a person in terms of understanding right and wrong and wanting to fight the fight for the little person. That's always been me or when I realized that something may be happening and affecting someone, if I can assist in any way, that's always, always been a part of who I am. And so starting the work at the commission, and I remember one of my law professors said at the time, when I asked him about the question of going there, when they offered me a position as an investigator one year later, he goes, well, you didn't come to law school to be an investigator, did you? And at that point, I was like, well, no, that's not really why I came to law school. That's true. I didn't come to law school so I could be an investigator at the commission. But the two statements didn't make any sense to me because it was like, that wasn't the end all for me. And I know in law school, we often talk about you become this attorney, you get the license to practice and so forth. That's the real reason why that you're going there. But there are a lot of jobs with the government sector that do require a legal background. Okay, And so it wasn't a stretch for me to be coming to the commission to be an investigator. And I really want to ask my, my uh, law professor at the time because I took courses dealing with employment discrimination law, sex-based discrimination in law school, and a slew of other courses in law school that were dealing with civil rights. So at some level, I almost wanted to ask my professor, do you remember I signed up for all those courses that I was taking? So there shouldn't be this like you're being dismayed of the fact that I'm wanting now to be an investigator there if I've been taking these courses. So for me, having taken the sex-based discrimination and employment discrimination law and, and other types of courses in civil rights when I was there, at Capital Law University, this became, after a year, something that I realized I really enjoy the work that I do. I'm very passionate about the work that I do. And, you know, to the extent that I want to continue working here, then do so. And then along come, at the same time, though, beginning to, I was a investigator for a year, which was from 98 to 99. At the same time, while I was still in law school, they are at the commission where I'm working at as an investigator, part of the group, the team that's creating the mediation ADR. So we started mediation ADR in 1999. So as I'm going through law school and I realize there's a possibility that if the pilot program is very sound, we can then branch this out to all of the regional offices statewide. And I realized that if you wanted to have that position as one of the original seven mediators that we hired in 1999, Capital Law University had a course dealing with mediation. So I took that course. And so I was one of the commission's original seven mediators in 1999. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's cool. There's still like three of us that are left. Brad Adams up in Toledo, Sonia Still in Columbus. She's one of the original seven. And that's in 1999. And then I was in that capacity as a mediator for a year. And then all of a sudden a decision was made that I would be the person overseeing the housing aspect of what we do. And uh, in terms of my knowledge base of fair housing, I was deeply steeped in law school in employment discrimination law. And I was sort of like going, housing? 
And <laughs> I, I, so I, t I told someone, I said, well, since the executive directors come to me and said that uh, would I do this, I didn't feel like I had the right of first refusal. And I realized that if it was a void, then I should fill it if they're coming to me to do that position, particular position. And then the rest has been history. So from 2000 on, this is where I've been. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed my own maturation over the years of getting to understand this. And there's something I always tell people is that you always go to the elders that are in the field that you're in, okay? Do not think that just because you've come in and you've got all these wonderful young ideas and thoughts that you're gonna change everything. I said, you always have to listen to the people that are the forerunners before you. So there were lots of people that I connected with right out of the gate so that I would understand for housing and quickly assimilate in terms of what I needed to do. And so I've been doing the housing since the year 2000. That's awesome. How has your work changed, not changed based off the current political climate that we're in now and everything, you know, summer 2020 was huge on the on the social justice forefront. How did that have impact your work or did it, did it not? Well, yeah, and I guess we, I, I'd like to back up a little bit to the COVID thing, which was probably the thing that materially changed what we do. When I say change what we do, we're still investigating those charges of discrimination. It is just how are we going to connect to the people that need to, that are going to file the complaints and so forth? And then going through the process of what everyone went through, which is working from home. So it was quite an overhaul to begin working from home because we as a state agency, we had not actually began working from home when COVID-19 hit. And so we um, had a new executive director uh, because the previous director had retired back in December of 2019. And so the search began for a new executive director. The new executive director was brought in on March 16th of 2020. And by March 19th of 2020, she is working on getting us working from home. Wow. <laughs> Having not met any of Jeez. us. Jeez. Yeah. And her name is Angela Phelps White. And she came with a lot of experience. Okay. But the thing that she didn't have is that she didn't know who we were. So imagine, Allison and Carrie, that you are in this workplace and you come in as the executive director. And on your first couple of days, you're getting to know people in what you call your central office. And you're getting to know them each day as you pass by their offices, but you're meeting with a few people from time to time. And by the third day, as she told me, she goes, Ronnell, I begin to realize that other people with state agency were carrying like equipment out of the building, such as monitors and keyboards and all and mouses. And she's like, there must be something going on that we're not aware of. Well, wow, wow. what we quickly became aware of was that we're now gonna be working from home officially the following Monday. So there's this major push to get us out of the office to work. And so this past year, that was probably the most difficult period of time. The first several months, when I say difficult, was just the transition of working with a new executive director who's not in the central office because I'm part of the central office team in Columbus. And so in our organizational structure, central office is sort of like the octopus head and you have the tentacles that go out to the five regions now, which is now Dayton, Toledo, Cleveland, Akron, and Columbus, okay? And then you also have central office in Columbus. So we're the head of the organization being the head. And then you have these little tentacles that go out to the other five regions who also have regional directors and supervisors in each region. So now we're having to use this new medium to not only do the day-to-day -day work, but to also get connected and get get to understand each other. And so the first several months was, was rather difficult in terms of just doing that because you're working now from home and you're trying to figure out the logistics of what you need to do. 
And uh, we, we quickly got up to speed in terms of how to do that. But the deal is, is that the interaction of seeing each other face to face every day, that was the part that was complicated in terms of doing it. And realizing that we've made some substantial changes for the director of the agency while at the same time COVID hits and we're now working from home. And she has navigated the waters brilliantly, okay? It's been like, sometimes I say, I don't, I don't know how you do this, okay? I said, you've got a lot on your plate here, okay? This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. That's so crazy. I know. And I, I started with Ohio Realtors in May. So it was kind of, you know, right towards maybe the end of, of the hardcore quarantine um, period. But I mean, I didn't meet any of my coworkers for the first, I don't know, three months that I was on board here. And then, you know, almost a year later, there's still staff that I haven't met face-to-face, and I haven't had the pleasure of even meeting a member face-to-face yet just because of COVID. So I totally understand those challenges and, you know, some of the stuff she's had to deal with going through that. Crazy times, you know, you you just never would even imagine that this would happen, but um, hopefully we're on the end of it now and and we'll never have to go through this again, my hopes. So I would love to kind of wrap up with um, one last thing I wanted to make sure we we talked about with you today is the memo that came out from HUD on um, February, maybe mid-February-ish, stating that for purposes of the Fair Housing Act, discrimination against persons based on sexual orientation and gender identity is prohibited as sex discrimination. And it's based on the Supreme Court ruling dealing with appointment. So I would love to hear from you a little bit about that, um, the impact of it, how it came about. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Well, well, and going backwards before the memo was the executive order 13988 by President Biden, which then looked at the Bostock decision that was dealing with Title VII. And then from reading what the executive order was stating, it was looking at then other anti-discrimination statutes that were covered under the federal law. And two of the ones that he mentioned were Title VIII, which is the Fair Housing Act, as well as Title IX, because Title IX deals with educational schools and colleges and universities and, and so forth. And so in looking at both of those federal statutes, what the executive order was saying was that you're going to treat these other statutes the same, meaning if you've got this under Title VII, since materially the actual protected classes are pretty much the same that exists for both, and the way that you would go about enforcing and the way that you would go about with remedies, that they then said that under Title VIII, we're now going to make this something that HUD is going to be doing. And then subsequent to that, there was a uh, conference call with HUD nationally for all of what we call FAP agencies, which is agencies like the Ohio Civil Rights Commission, and that stands for Fair Housing Assistance Programs. So state and local governments that have this thing called substantial equivalency, they are now called FAP agencies. And so they had a meeting with all of us to explain to us that here's what's happened as of January 20th with the executive order, and that this is how HUD is now going to be interpreting this, and that indicating to the FAP agencies that 
to the extent that if your current statute that you have, whether on the local level or, the, or your state level, would have uh, protections for sexual orientation and gender identity, that being said, would you still be able to enforce your, your state statute using the Bostock decision, which basically said that under Title VII, that you did not need necessarily to have a separate protection added, that under sex-based discrimination, sexual orientation and gender identity fit right underneath sexual orientation. And so that's what the decision was doing. And so essentially what HUD is saying is that it also fits underneath there because typically when you look at how you begin to interpret law, you look to other statutes that may be in existence. And so therefore you draw upon that. And there's been a lot of court cases over the years where you can draw upon something under a Title VII claim in federal court and then make that applicable to Title VIII and vice versa because you're trying to look for something. So that memo was, was saying to the BAP agencies, state and local, we're looking to see would you also be doing the same thing. And as we know in the state of Ohio, presently we don't have an actual state statute that says sexual orientation, gender identity is part of our statute. But this is where I have to really make sure people understand, which is the commission for more than over a decade has been investigating complaints based upon transgender because there were two uh, Sixth Circuit court cases. One was in Toledo and one was out of, uh, out of Cincinnati. One of the cases dealt with the fire department. One of the cases dealt with the police department. And this was a person who was transgender. And in both instances, in those two cases, the person who was going from male to female that was wanting to dress in the appropriate dressing, uh, dressed out for the uh, gender that they were identifying with. And so at the Sixth Circuit Court level, it said yes, in terms of this was discrimination that would be actionable underneath our statute under 4112. And so that case originated out of Ohio at the state level, which then got to the Sixth Circuit. So if you can stay with me just for a second in terms of how that's set up. So you get your municipal court who may have a case that comes in it at the trial level, then you can appeal that on to the next level. So this got appealed all the way up to the Sixth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit covers not only Ohio, but several other states. So this feeds into it. So when you see a case that's at the Sixth Circuit that talks about employment, housing, public accommodation, and so forth, then that's gonna be applicable to the commission in terms of what we do. So because that case had already set forth this precedence in terms of transgender issues, we had been investigating those cases. And so we were not turning away any case that came to the commission if they said that it was something other than just typical gender discrimination. And so when it came to the deal about sexual orientation before the uh, executive order was passed and the memo was brought down, more than a couple of years, we were already accepting complaints that they said sexual orientation because what we did was we investigated them to see if there were any, any notions of gender stereotyping going on. And, and so that's how we were investigating the cases. So on some level, what HUD is doing by saying, are you going to investigate these cases? We've already been investigating the cases. We've not been turning them away. What will now happen over the next month or so is, is that once a case comes in, if it is a sexual orientation or gender identity, essentially the investigation is still the same because on these types of cases, what I want to make sure everyone understands is that you can allege it's, it's any of these spaces, but we also have to look at comparable treatment of how other people are being treated. So it's not enough just to say that I've been discriminated against. I believe I've been discriminated against. Says we have to check and get documentations and so forth. And so when I look at the cases that we were accepting prior to the executive order, as well as the HUD memo, 
Prior to that, I don't remember any case that we had where the person alleged sexual orientation that we had any evidence that showed that there was actual direct statements that said, I'm not going to rent to you because you're gay or transgender. Because if you think about it in today's world, even with being black or so forth, you don't generally get someone saying right out of the gate, I'm not going to do this because of that. So we couldn't find anything like that. And then when you have to investigate, then you look for corroborative information to go from there. Okay. So essentially, we've been doing some of this without the public really knowing that we were doing this because of those six, six circuit court cases. Okay. So we believe that this will be an easy transition for us to move into this next step, which is you can actually file on the basis of sexual orientation. And again, we were not stopping people from filing over this last couple of years. We were saying, allow them to file those complaints because we know that there could be other issues that could be there and we're going to investigate everything that's there. In terms of the investigation, if you thought it was because of the stereotypical assumptions of what it means to be a male or female, we still have to show that evidence that would be there. So on some level, the investigation is going to be very similar to what we've already been doing. So does the lack of state statute, though, change the outcome of the investigation? Like, how how does that work? Is it the state that's enforcing or is it the federal government that's enforcing? And conversely, how does the executive order and the memo that just came from HUD impact the reality on the ground for people in Ohio? Well, it's because uh, it, essentially you look at an executive order that was passed January 20th. Okay, Then in February, there is the thing coming from HUD. And all of this is moving fairly fast before you ever know that it's coming. So it, it hits you. And now we're into the month of April. And so what HUD was requesting, which is for the entities to, to actually do some stuff that shows it, that you are doing this specific work. Okay. And what HUD also said, too, is that we can't compel you as an agency to do this because we, we recognize that you've got your state legislator that may be there as well. And you have these other competing other things that are there. Okay. So essentially, if the state of Ohio said, it was not going to do these cases, then HUD is going to keep those cases and investigate them at the federal level. And so I, I think, and I'm not trying to speak for HUD, I think what HUD is recognizing is that you've got the executive order that's at the federal level, and then you have your memo that's there, and it's all is matriculating down. So you must permit the agencies at the state and local level to now move in that direction, if that's where we're going, to, to actually cover this and not expect that there's going to be an overnight sort of transformation of this thing. And so, so we've gone through the process of working with HUD and responding to them so that they can understand in terms of the enforcement of our state statute, this is where we're going, that we have the full intent of doing such. Okay? And so then we'll go from there in terms of changing things that we do internally. But when I say changing things, I don't think there's a whole lot that we need to do because we were still accepting those charges. Because I think that's the main thing I want to point out to people is that materially, I don't think there's a whole lot of changing that has to be done here. Because we were still investigating those cases. We were not saying you couldn't file on those cases. And then if we got to the point to where we could have proved that it was purely because of your sexual orientation, then we would have had to make a decision at that point. And in none of the cases that we had, could we actually prove that there was that that was the real impetus as to why the person was denying the housing? Because when you look at this under sex-based discrimination, even sexual harassment was not part of the original sex-based discrimination that we deal with today. Sexual harassment, when I started with the agency back in 1997, was not there so much as it was once we got into 2000. There was a point in time on sexual harassment where if you were a person and you were alleging someone was sexually harassing you, back when I started with the agency in 97, 
you had to prove that the person had a real interest to have sex with you. That's where wow. the law was. Wow. And imagine wow. trying to investigate yeah. a case where you have to prove that they wanted to have That's sex with different. you. That's different. So as the law began to mature and change, it, it moved away from that and said, it didn't matter whether they wanted to have sex with you as long as it had elements of sex. And so that's how we view this in terms of, of sexual orientation and gender identity is that if it has elements of sex in it and we can prove that this is the reason behind it, then that's, that charge will result in probable cause finding, which indicates yeah. that more likely than not, there's discrimination. So it's not, on some level, it's really simple in my mind. On some levels, it's really complicated because we begin to draw in all these other things that we think would actually go to that investigation. And I tell people all the time, you're going to still do the basic investigation that you did when it was race, that you did when it was disability, that you did when it was uh, retaliation, that you did when it was national origin, that you did when it was religion. It's still going to be the same investigation. Fascinating. Yeah. I have one more question. I'm so sorry. I know we're going long here. You know, we know for the past decade or so, you know, every General Assembly we get the Equality Act introduced by different legislators. So, you know, after what you've just told us that you guys are already investigating these claims, that you're already paying attention to them, how would the passage of something like the Equality Act impact your day-to-day then? Well, the Equality Act, if it were passed, I think it makes a simpler way of of looking at the case, meaning, I'm not looking at the case, okay? If your state statute, as I said, like the Prego thing, it's in there, okay? You, you clearly can continue to investigate. And yes, people may, some folks will say that, that is not, it's not jurisdictional for you. So that if it's in there in your actual statute and it says that, if it's enumerated in your statute, it's an easier thing to deflect when someone says jurisdictionally, you don't have jurisdiction to do the case, okay? So, but then again, you do recognize that as a colleague of mine once said, when you create a state statute, okay, you cannot come up with every possible thing that's there to put in the statute that you would be investigating because the statute would be just tremendously, it would be huge, okay? And so what I'm saying is that there are things that are out there that legislators cannot actually do every single time, meaning every little issue that I think should be in there or you may think should be in there, Allison, you can't add all those things to it. There are some things that are just going to be there that you're going to have to look at in terms of how the statute is being interpreted. And so, yes, you know, if, if they were to pass it, and add that to there and make a separate category for it, that would be something that clearly says you can. But understand, because of the lineage of court cases that have existed, that we've already been investigating things on transgender and gender identity because of the Sixth Circuit Court cases. So this is one step removed from that in terms of sexual orientation because it's not there. And then let me also remind folks as well, which is that under state government in Ohio, we've almost always had either, either purely sexual orientation and gender identity are one of the other to be in state government to where you can't discriminate. So you got state government doing this year after year after year in terms of the people that are working there. You have the federal level doing the same thing in terms of its employees, which is you cannot discriminate based upon sexual orientation, gender identity. So therefore it's sort of like, okay, we do it in the public sector government, but we're not doing it in the private sector. And then of course we know that we've got lots of businesses and corporations in Columbus that are such as L brands and nationwide and so forth and all of them have things that are there that says that we're not going to allow you to discriminate based upon sexual orientation, gender identity. As you mentioned with the hall realtors, and I know this for sure, you have your code of ethics that says the same thing. So this is just one of those steps in terms of getting there and saying that we have all these other avenues where people are being protected in terms of this, 
issue here in terms of sexual orientation, gender identity. We're now moving into this situation whereby sexual orientation, gender identity may be covered by the state. And uh, yes, you know, if, if that gets passed, then that allows us an easier way of just explaining it to the public. That's great clarification. I'm really glad we brought that up. And, um, you know, you gave such great, great detail and insight on that. So thank you for that. Um, and April is Fair Housing Month. So, um, you know, we'll be celebrating all month long. And that's why we wanted to have you on today, uh, Ronell, to just dive a little bit deeper into fair housing and and how we're, you know, making sure that it happens, you know, between both of our organizations, uh, we're working together to, to make sure fair housing is accessible to all. Um, and, you know, Ohio Realtors is a is a big champion of fair housing and, and we always will be. So thank you for all the work that you're doing on fair housing and thanks for being, you know, one of our partners. And I'm sure we will have you on again or, or that, um, you know, you'll be involved with us again in the future. So thank you so much. We will continue the fair housing fight for all. And thank you both for being here with me today. Right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.